morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Um, even though we don't have a guest in the studio, it's kind of a full house today. Karen McClellan is, is sitting over there across from me, uh, per usual. Say something, Karen. Say, say hello to people. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. No, she's reading important data <laughs> points, uh, and um, you always have to get her attention at the no, beginning yeah, of the no, show. Uh, you know, we don't. We, we don't want. Uh, we, I've run out of things to throw at, at her, or no, or over, oh, over towards her. Hmm. No, no, and so you're here today. That's good. And and we have um, a, a guest, a host, uh, uh, Stephen Hanks, uh, who's come, done a lot of shows, brought us a lot of people, and he's the one who actually reached out to our guest today. Um, Peter Montgomery, and he's going to introduce him, telling me a little bit about the organization that Peter works for before we let Peter talk. There you go. Well, um, before we introduce Peter directly, just a little bit about the organizations that he works for. Uh, the People for the American Way is a progressive advocacy organization founded way back in 1981 by the legendary television and film producer Norman Lear, who is now about 250 years old and still going strong. Um, and there's an offshoot of that organization called Right Wing Watch, which is one of their projects, which has been dedicated to monitoring and exposing the activities of, uh, and rhetoric of right-wing activists and organizations in order to expose their extreme agenda. And obviously their work has been more important than ever uh, in the past couple of years. Um, and their longtime senior fellow and acting research director is Peter Montgomery, and he's our guest today. Peter has studied the religious right movement and its political allies for more than two decades, and he's written extensively about marriage equality, religious liberty, and other conflicts at the intersection of religion, politics, and LGBTQ issues, and Peter, it's great to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So right off the bat, I wanted to talk to you about a piece that you wrote recently um, at, the, at the website, at the uh, Right Wing Watch website. And it's called How Christian Nationalism Fueled the Insurrection and Threatens Democracy. One of the things that I wanted to, you to explain uh, because I think a lot of people are trying to try to get a definition of Christian nationalism as opposed to white supremacy um, and whether or not they're, they go hand in hand is one sort of an offshoot of another. Um, I'm wondering whether I, I, a number of years ago, I wrote a piece before the 2018 election about how I thought the threat to democracy was white supremacy. Now I'm starting to come around to the Christian nationalism side um, be, because um, that seems to be where all the energy is on the extreme right. So if you could explain, the, define and explain how, what the connections are here. Yeah, I think uh, you were on to something with uh, your previous article about the nationalism and there was a lot of overlap. You know, there's so much overlap that 
some other religion scholars um, who are looking at working in this field talk about white Christian nationalism. You know, they, they, they're just writing about it that way because they see that um, both white nationalism and Christian nationalism are grounded in the same kind of politics of grievance, right? And mm-hmm. that's this idea that this country was founded by and for a certain group of people, white Christians, and that other, and so that's who the country really belongs to, and other people are trying to take it away from them, or have taken it away from them. And that's all this, um, you know, the grievance rhetoric you see on the religious right about secularists and feminists, you know, uh, driving uh, prayer out of the schools, or, um, you know, uh, forcing uh, kids to, you know, be in schools where there's affirming politics. Uh, affirming policies toward gay kids, so uh, it's that politics of grievance that really that really um, is the same as you see in the white nationalists that this is you know a white country and that uh, you know immigrants and people of color are trying to take it away. Uh, that's you know plays into this great replacement theory we hear from the white nationalists that some. You know, Jews are trying to import black and brown people into the country to uh, dilute the white majority. Um, you see it in the kind of rhetoric from Donald Trump and the Stop the Steal people who's, who basically say the election was stolen from Trump supporters by illegitimate black and brown voters and corrupt election officials. Yeah. So that dynamic, I think that dynamic of the politics of grievance is really central to uh, the MAGA movement. It's central to Christian nationalism, and it's central to white nationalism. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of overlap. I'm wondering what, like, what the chicken and the egg here is in terms of, you know, I'm beginning to think that the white nationalists who are, are, are basically groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, you know, the, the people that stormed the Capitol, the ones that carry the guns, the violent mob, are they kind of like the sort of the militia of the Christian nationalist movement? Are they, have they kind of adopted Christian nationalism because it's convenient given what they want to accomplish? And Christian nationalism is really where the power is because they're being funded by people like Peter Thiel, and uh, and the wealthy uh, people on that side of the fence. Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think someone like Trump, you know, cynically uses the religious right and the Christian nationalists because he knows that there's a lot of energy in that movement. He knows that there is a a big part of the Republican Party base uh, is that movement, and so he really um, he made a deal with them to get elected. Mm-hmm. And he still and he still counts on them. And I think he looks to groups like the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers to be his enforcers. And I think they certainly uh, saw themselves that way, as we saw during the, the Stop the Steal and the January 6th insurrection, that they they were sort of ready to be his private militia. You know, they were just waiting for him to call on them to uh, to come to his aid with with you know, violence, uh, which they did on January 6th. Right. Yeah, I wonder, you've, you've watched the far right 
now for a couple of decades very closely. And Karen and I were talking before the show, and we were original listeners to uh, uh, readers, yeah. li- readers of Right Wing Watch, and and uh, we're. When People of American Way was formed, for the American Way was formed, it was one of the few liberal organizations like that that was was new and innovative in terms of what it did. So you've watched the right wing, extreme right wing. We're not talking about conservative folks. Extreme right wing now for 20 years. How has it changed? How has the rhetoric changed over a period of 20 years? And how have... I guess not only the rhetoric, but how are the kind of people involved? Have they evolved, changed in in the period you've been watching them? Well, that's an interesting question. That's a big question. I would say that, um, you know, some parts of the right, like, say, the white nationalist right, uh, they have moved far from the fringe and much more into uh, the Republican Party into the political stage in a way that they never were, frankly, before Donald Trump came on the scene. And when he ran for office, you know, his his 2015-2016 campaign really excited and energized white nationalists because he was appealing so blatantly and in such an ugly way to anti-immigrant rhetoric and, and playing to people's bigotries that he really energized and emboldened that part of the movement. And uh, so now we see people like your own state senator, Wendy Rogers, who's one of the public officials most closely aligned with Nick Fuentes, who is an uh, online personality, basically, who leads this um, uh, movement of white nationalist uh, young men and uh, who is blatantly anti-Semitic, blatantly racist, um, and yet she fully embraces him. And she, she does so um, in terms of, uh, uh, of in Christian nation terms, because uh, Nick Fuentes portrays himself in Christian nation terms, that his, his um, white nationalist American First Political Action Committee conference, you know, chance would break out of Christ is King. That's one of their, their mottos. And she uh, used that rhetoric when she sent a video message to his uh, 2022 conference earlier this year, she delivered like a six-minute-long message, which is really, I went back and looked at it in in uh, preparation for talking to y'all, and it's pretty stunning. I mean, you know, she talks about um, how they should keep doing what they're doing, these young white nationalists, these bigots, and that uh, together they, you know, needed to build gallows for the uh, traitors, that they needed to publish, being, you know, people who were uh, uh, trying to fight the COVID pandemic. Yeah, we're, we're so, sort of... Uh, so anyway, on the White Nationalist Front, yeah. I think they've been, um, they've moved far into the, uh, I wouldn't say the middle, but they've moved onto the political stage, welcomed there by Trump and his campaign and the people around him. And that's, I think, really destructive and unfortunate. You think that's, that's the, the big change then, the Peter? Christian right has become more aggressively uh, Christian nationalist, more overtly Christian nationalist, some even embracing that term, uh, uh, making it clear now that they have uh, the Supreme Court um, much more aligned to them, thanks to Trump, of, of just 
you know, how far they are willing to to go to um, achieve their goals of, of what the kind of country they want this to become. And I think um, that's also very dangerous. So all religions have the potential to be nationalistic. I mean, if we look around the world, we can see, you know, um, uh, Joseph Campbell used to say, you know, it's monotheists that are, that are that cause wars and stuff, and polytheists who believe in a lot of different gods and stuff don't get in fights with each other. But we can look at the situation in India where we have Hindu nationalism. So all these religions can can become nationalistic. And I, I think that many of us have felt that's true about many of the people on the Christian right, that the religion for them is a fight. It's a war against everybody else and other people's values. And um, we very hear very little about, you know, what, most people would think with the core values of Christianity or back to almost any other religion, what we're hearing is, is something else. It's them against, uh, them against us, Peter. And that seems to be the driving force of this kind of revenge, um, rancor, uh, against sort of ordinary folks going about their business. I mean, they're really dissatisfied. And Wendy Rogers, and, uh, and Karen could tell you a lot about her, is, is really crazy. I mean, she's, she's a right-wing nutcase, and so is, uh, is, is Gosar. Both of these people have represented our and political Mark, Mark Fincham, who's running for Secretary of State right. in Arizona, he and Wendy Rogers Absolutely. both continually tell us they're proud members of the Oath Keepers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... And, well, a decade ago, 20 years ago, politicians with those views would never have sort of put that on line one on their biography. And that's, yes. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I remember wa- I was watching, uh, you know, after, after the 2020 election and Trump's defeat and during that whole period where they were trying to uh, overturn the, his defeat, I remember watching one of the, rallies on the National Mall. This was on December 12th, and it was organized supposedly as a prayer rally. It was organized by a bunch of uh, right-wing Christian groups of different denominational uh, stripes uh, to, you know, to call for Trump to stay in office and all this. But it was from that stage, the supposedly, at the supposedly um, religious event, that the founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, got up and talked about the fact that Trump needed to um, you know, use his powers as commander-in-chief to do whatever he needed to stay in office, and that if he didn't do it, it was going to leave it to people like the Oath Keepers to wage bloody civil war. And, I mean, that was pretty stunning. And, you, and the response to the from the MC of the event, who was this Christian right um, broadcaster and author Eric Metaxas was to say, "God bless you." He's keeping it real, folks. Now, would that be your reaction to someone threatening bloody civil war? It's pretty stunning. Well, it seems that back in the early days, like if your organization, you it was the beginning of this idea of the real politicization of some of these right-wing Christian groups. Because I remember reading things, you know, some pastor somewhere, and you're, you're going to report something that somebody said maybe even in a church. But in the 80s, the 90s, it was sort of the beginning of this. Now that sort of political nationalism has moved almost into mainstream 
more mainstream Christian groups and vice versa, so that you have these these supposed you know, like you talk about a prayer rally that's really political. You know, yeah. That that had, those had its its you know, beginnings in the in the eighties and the nineties when some of these right wing conservative religious groups who in the past had sort of been apolitical. You know what's what's God is God's and what's man's is man's, and now they they have moved into into much more into center stage. So you see people who are by their day jobs are pastors of some of these you know big churches who are as political in their speech, maybe not necessarily from the pulpit, but they show up at these rallies and they're speaking at these rallies. And there's you know I, less. I think Karen's got a yeah. point that it's that it started a lot in the eighties. Yeah. I I lived in New York City and I used to visit my family in Oklahoma and I would go back there and I turned the television on and there were all these right wing preachers or all these people trying to extract money from fairly poor folks. And, and then I would go back to New York and I try to talk to my friends about what was going on out of the rest of the country. But in New York, it was a, it's just a very faint voice. Uh, people didn't really hear it and really didn't see the problem for a long time. How, how do you think People who say are conventionally religious, who go to church on Sunday, how do they view the, uh, uh, the these extremists? I mean, if if I'm if I'm a Baptist and I'm going to church every Sunday, how do I view my religion being pushed in this way? Even if I'm a conservative, sure. I think there's a big I think there's a big range of opinion on that. I mean, I think there are a lot of Christians who do not recognize the Bible or the Christ that is preached by the far right and who are offended by the way that their faith is distorted and abused. Um, and there's, even, there's a group out there right now called Christians Against Christian Nationalism, which is explicitly saying, you know, that's Christian nationalism is, is a political ideology that uses, you know, the, the language of faith as a, as a kind of motivator, but it's really a political ideology. And um, there are plenty of Christians who don't, don't accept that. And I think it's one, one reason that a lot of Christians see that young people are leaving the church is because um, it's become too associated with uh, this right-wing political ideology that they, that they do not accept. So there is, there's definitely a division within there, and um, you know there's some sociologists who have who have uh, really started studying Christian nationalism in a in a uh, very rigorous way. You know, asking a lot of questions to sort of create um, scales of the extent to which someone um, accepts Christian nationalist beliefs. You know, they ask questions like, you know, should the government declare this to be a Christian nation? Should the Bible be taught in public schools? You know, things like that. So there are kinds of questions. And uh, the greater someone adheres to Christian nationalist beliefs, the more likely they are to support authoritarianism and the more likely they are to uh, believe that, that violence might be necessary, uh, you know, political violence might be necessary. And so that's, you know, that's not all Christians. It's people who have really uh, embraced this political ideology that ties um, a very conservative religious orientation to these far-right political views. You know, um, Peter, this morning I was watching um, one of the news shows, 
and two statements by current Republican U.S. senators really struck me. And one was by was from Rick Scott, who was interviewed and asked what he thought about Trump's tweet over the weekend, claiming that Mitch McConnell had a death wish. And he did, you know, the usual skirting around the issue by saying, well, he focused more on what he said about Mitch McConnell's wife, the racist comment. And he said, well, nobody uh, uh, supports anything racist at all. But he would not address Trump's comment about McConnell. And this is a senator in the caucus. And the other comment was from Susan Collins, who was pointing out how many death threats there have been recently against uh, congressmen, senators from both on both parties and how she is worried about somebody getting killed. Now, you would think that somebody like Susan Collins, who could make a statement like that, might have a press conference and say, I can no longer be in this party. Of course, that's not going to happen. But if if people on that level of the leadership are not speaking out and totally denouncing white supremacy, Christian nationalism, how are we going to stop this? They're not, they used to be fringe in this country for decades. They were fringe. Now they seem not to be. How, how do you see this stopping? Well, I think it's, I, th- I saw the Rick Scott piece. That I thought it was appalling because it's just emblematic of how little courage there is among Republican elected officials to cross Donald Trump. I mean, there is almost none of them are willing to criticize him even when he does something like that, you know, a veiled, uh, lightly veiled threat against uh, Mitch McConnell. And, you know, Trump has, that's not the first time Trump has been doing that. You know, he's been talking about, you know, suggesting that his supporters are going to, uh, rise up or engage in violence if he's indicted for any of his crimes or if he's held accountable in any way. And, um, you know, we certainly, at all the stop the steal rallies, um, you know, there's a lot of speakers threatening violence, talking about 1776. You know, this is uh, the we need a new revolution. We need a civil war. Um a lot of that rhetoric bleeds over on the uh, Christian right to this idea that um, uh, we're engaged in a spiritual war and that Donald Trump had been anointed by God and so that people who were opponents of Trump were not just wrong and were not just political opponents, but were actually demonic and agents of Satan. And, you know, millions of Americans hear those messages and absorb those messages, and that's I, it's, I agree it's incredibly toxic. I, I, I do think there's going to be more political violence in our future because of political leaders who are willing to um, inflame it. And uh, I, I think it's – I think we're facing some, some tough yeah. days ahead. Yeah, yeah. The tension between uh, the left and the right or, or liberals and, and uh, some kinds of conservative – has been building more and more and more. It's almost like a rubber band that gets stretched further and further and further. And you worry that that uh, Peter that it'll it'll actually break into into some not just one instance 
of violence, but a pattern of violence to try to solve things. It, it, I guess that won't happen as long as, a, as the right really believes they're going to take over by other means. But um, but there could be. Well, but it's also it's also happening. Unfortunately, it's happening at at all levels. This is not just about you know the insurrection at the Capitol or Donald Trump. You know the after the insurrection, the Proud Boys have kind of decided to go local and embed themselves in in local battles. And so now, you know, they're uh, harassing um, election officials or school board members. You know, we have, um, you know, this is a threat to democracy just on the on the functional level, is that something like one-fifth of local election officials are thinking about quitting their jobs because they faced so much uh, smears and harassment and threats since the 2020 election. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just a threat to the smooth functioning of yeah, our we've, elections. We've seen that, that expertise here in our county, um, in Arizona, in our county, both our elected elections uh, recorder and the appointed elections director both resigned. This is they were. This is a Republican county. They were. They're Republicans. They've been in office for a long time, supported by Republicans, and they both got tired of being harassed by Republicans in a county that Trump won by a large margin, and they both have left their office. And so we've. Yeah. Right. The attack was so yeah. vicious on them yeah. in a county where where there really wasn't any debate. I mean, Trump won it. Even none of us would 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 dispute that. That in this, it's one of the most conservative counties in the. In the country, and and right. they so harassed two of yeah, these so, honest that, women. I, I now remember models. reading about um, Leslie Hoffman stepping down. I think, exactly. Remember thinking, if that's the kind of harassment someone's receiving in a, a county that Trump won two to one, imagine what's mm. happening to officials where it was really a close race. Good you know, point. And where, well, you know, we all saw what happened in Maricopa there with that ludicrous <laughs> audit that went on and on and on and on. But, yeah. Um, but there in Maricopa, so, the one so I, just, I think yeah. threats of violence against election officials, against school board members, against teachers, against librarians. Um, I think the, the far right and groups like, you know, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and, um, you know, some uh, local groups that are sort of affiliated with that. What's the you all have one in Arizona, Lions of Liberty? That uh, I think don't is, know um, them. connected to the Oath Keepers. It's you know kind of says they're going to be uh, coordinating with the local sheriffs to provide security for mail drop boxes. Hmm. You know that sounds like a, just a voter intimidation yeah. plan to me. But yeah, well, Arizona is the crucible for all of these craziness. You know, constitutional sheriffs movement in the past that was one mm -hmm. of our local sovereign county citizens. sheriffs, sovereign citizens. Turning Point yeah. USA is based in Phoenix. You know. In the, the group that presents itself as a grassroots student movement, which we know is not. It's a, a, a very authoritarian organized organization funded by Republican donors, not a grassroots organization in any sense. But you know, we've, we've got Absolutely. them all here in Arizona. And, and Charlie Kirk, who yeah. runs that, I mean, he's kind of interesting, too, in how he's developed. Because when Turning Point USA got started, it really kind of had this... Um, Oh, I don't know, young, hip, libertarian vibe to it. You know, they had these huge booths at CPAC conferences with, you know, like T-shirts that said, you know, big government sucks, socialism sucks. That was kind of the vibe. They were like, you know, the bad boys. 
but he's really in the last couple of years he's um, embraced uh, the Christian nationalists, and and now there's a huge uh, part of Turning Point that is is connecting with with right wing churches to turn them into voter turnout operations, and and he's really. Um, yeah, and that's his order to just become the political stop point. They've got a conference coming up in December, and it's the if you are the uh, you know Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, you know, if you are a elected you know, congressman, senator of that sort of persuasion, that's the place to be yeah. to show yeah. up at these at these organizations. Where he's yeah. become a kind of major player yeah. in the Re- Republican Party. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and who who would have thought a few years ago when the organization started, like you say, it was a libertarian group basically. Um, what well, do you think? Th- there's there's now this whole um, there's this whole whole industry of people on the right having rallies. I think Trump's rallies, election rallies, kind of kicked off this whole thing. You know, we've got all these like. The Reawaken America tour and all these other tours where where MAGA world figures like Michael Flynn, um, Marjorie Taylor you know, Greene, they, they get on the they go on the road together. And right. so, like Turning Point USA is like one of the big things, but there's all these other groups that do this. And I think for a lot of people, you know, that's that's their community. Um, they've sort of found a sense of purpose. Yes, their church. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened uh, in recent years, and I think particularly in the Trump era, is that um, a lot of people who are not churchgoers are now defining themselves as evangelicals who didn't before, not because they don't go to the church, but because they see that that is now part of the conservative movement identity. Mm, so you have yes. this strange blurring of um, of the the political identity and the religious identity all connected in with the identity of, of Trump and the cult of personality that's, that's developed around him. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's disturbing also when you see how many of the right-wing leaders in the United States, Trump and many of his supporters, how much they have um, embraced and supported Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban in Hungary, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, they look to these authoritarian strongmen, these you know anti-democratic um, leaders who are willing to uh, crush dissent and you know crush independent media, and uh, you know take over the judiciary, all that stuff to eliminate checks and balances, in order to create the kind of um, society that matches their worldview and that there's a lot of people on the right in the U.S. who seem to have that same um, desire to have uh, an authoritarian government that will uh, just sort of impose the kind of country they want. Well, and and uh, I think that's, you know, uh, I think that's something that uh, is troubling to think about. Yeah, well, think give about, it, give it what's getting possibly elected again. Yeah, given what's been going on with the Supreme Court and and uh, and and federal courts all over the country, the Trump appoint. I mean, they basically want to obliterate the notion of the separation of church and state. Yes. Don't, 
Yeah. Uh, Peter, I wanted to ask you something about um, the media. This this is a rhetorical question that may be tough for you to answer, but given that what we're talking about is not a version of conspiracy theory, I mean, it's actually going on, although they probably would say it is. Um, when you have organizations like yours, Right Wing Watch and uh, Southern Poverty Law Center and the Brennan Center, all researching this, writing about it, covering it, alerting us to the dangers that it, that it poses. Why don't you think the national media is focusing on it more than the mainstream media is focusing on it more when it's obviously part of what led to the insurrection? That's a good question. I think they focus on it a lot more than they used to. Uh, there's, you know, I think there's a lot more people now taking the far right seriously. I think that uh, insurrection was a wake-up call for a lot of people. I think that the um, the alliance between Trump and the sort of overtly dominionist Christian nationalist leaders is a wake-up call for some people. I think I think for a lot of journalists who cover politics, you know, they um, I don't know. They, I think they want to think of our political system as that our, our democratic institutions are so strong that um, you know the threat of authoritarianism is not something we have to face. They want to believe that the checks and balances we have institutionally are going to protect us from extremists, and they're sort of uh, there's been a, you know there's sort of a culture of not taking sides, and uh, you've got you know Republicans and Democrats. And, you know, they disagree on policies and they just fight it out. And I think it has taken a while for mainstream media to figure out how to cover someone like Trump who just lies incessantly and cannot be shamed by his lies because you can't shame Trump. It's right. not possible. Uh, and, and, and people who support him who are, who are willing to lie and, uh, Anyway, so I think that the level of extremism that has infiltrated the Republican Party has taken a while for people to accept and grapple with. Hmm. I want to go back to one of your earlier points, Peter. I think that shit has been happening. Which is the, there's the people that you're talking about right there that are manipulating people for political advantage to become famous, to get rich, to to, uh, feel powerful. Uh, and there's those people, but there's people who you alluded to earlier who really believe it, who these rallies and this combination of uh, magma and, uh, and, and, and Christian right has become their psychological and spiritual home. It may seem strange to us, but we have a whole culture of revivals in the United States over our whole history, pretty much. Um, once it once these people fully identify with the movement and really believe in it, is there any way to reach them or how should we react to them? Because if, if I, if my spiritual home and my political home is in one place and it's a place which is destroying the country, there's not much to say to me or is there? I think that is a, Really good question, and that's a really hard one. You know, there are, I know there are uh, a lot of researchers figuring out, for example, how do you talk to someone who has gone down the rabbit hole of QAnon conspiracy theories? And that has become their whole world, 
and the community online has become their family and their community. I think it's pretty hard to break into those bubbles. And, and I think some of it is, is trying to stay in conversation with people, trying to um, ask them questions as opposed to shaming them and shutting them down. But that's a very one-on-one thing. I think uh, in the big picture, we've got to figure out, get a better handle on the role of media and social media algorithms in driving people uh, further into extremism and driving people down those rabbit holes. Um, but it's, it's not an easy question. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be a tough, a tough one to yeah, figure out. To pick up on what Stephen was just alluding to, um, you know, I personally have friends who have family members who have fallen into these rabbit holes. And if people within families can't reach them, how does anybody else do it? You know, I mean, families have been broken apart by, by this kind of friendships. Yeah. Friendships. I mean, if, if the people closest to those can't reach them, who can, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but yeah, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> it kind of makes it even tougher. Stan. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, it's very true. And I, I will say I am not immune. I have QAnon conspiracy theorists in my extended family and like a lot of families, I think uh, it's it's tough to know how to deal with that. So I, I think there's a lot of um, you know smart people, sociologists trying to think through this. You know, social psychologists. You know, how do we do that? I think part of it is going to take leadership. You are going to have to have people who are Republicans, people who are Christians, people who are parts of communities that these folks see themselves also part of, but who are not on the extreme, who can, um, you know, give people ways to, to find their way out. Uh, and that, I think that's got to be part of the solution. You know, I also think part of the solution is, is just some steady truth-telling. I thought that the tone that has been taken by the House January 6th Committee has been very... Uh, helpful in that regard. They've been very um, committed to laying out the facts. They've had uh, Liz Cheney and Kinsinger, uh, you know, as Republicans, just really making the case, you know, not in a partisan or histrionic manner that would turn people off. And I think, I think that has to be reaching some people. And, you know, polls suggest that it hasn't moved a whole lot of uh, hardcore partisan Republicans, but that it has changed the thinking of a pretty good chunk of independents on how they look at what happened on January 6th. So I think calm, steady truth-telling um, will eventually break through to some people, uh, not everybody. Yeah, it's like you got to keep talking to these people, and that, that's sort of the, the politicians as if they shared the same facts, and we all had the which we no longer share the same facts. But just to keep talking to them as if that was true and explain the things and hope that it you know, eventually does sort of sink in, you know, maybe even to the point of some of these people realizing that what they thought was the majority view is not just because it was voiced by the loudest members of their own party. You know, that's, that's right. There start I, to be some political consequences. I think in Arizona yeah. there are whole areas where everybody is is really a conservative Republican. And when people start talking to you, they assume you are. <laughs> 
And if I go back to Oklahoma, if I were to go to my hometown, my brother found out that it's all Trump all the time. And if you're not, they they just assume you agree with them. Like they assumed at one time when I was a kid that you were a racist, just like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really assumed you were a racist or that you hated Jews. And if you didn't, you were put on the spot, you know. So you either had to fight or flight. You either had to confront them. Or you had to. That's why I'm more sympathetic to some of the things that the schools are doing to try to protect people from hate speech than than, I, than a lot of liberals are. Because I I saw an environment where that's what you had to do. You had to fight all the time, and, and nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to live in an environment when you're in constant conflict. It's just not human nature, I think. Um, we're running out of time. Any any last um, Thoughts, Peter, of, of, of what's most important, what can our listeners do? I thought your point about, uh, and I think we all agree because I see, I see Karen and, and Stephen nodding, your point about just repeating the facts and the information in a calm way, systematically, on and on, and just is, will have some effect. What else? Yeah, and I also think it's important for to not give in to despair. I mean, as someone who wallows in this stuff all the time, it's very easy to feel despair about um, the state of things in our future. But, you know, the that's when you mentioned Norman Lear. He just had his 100th birthday, and uh, he has the perspective of someone who has seen the com- com- country come through worse times than we are facing now. And, uh, you know, together uh, we can overcome a lot of things. I think the extremists are, have been building power, but they are – they still do not represent the majority of Americans. Um, and I think that uh, we need to keep that in perspective, too, that, uh, you know, we can have, have faith in each other. And if we work hard enough, we can uh, protect the democracy that we're so worried about. Um, let's take out a minute. We kind of wrap things up. We've got three minutes left. We want to thank our our supporters, um, the Democrats of the Red Rock. We went to their wonderful picnic. I think all three of us yeah, were yesterday. there. Yeah, and um, the, 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 I, I have to say, from the days twenty years ago when I started in Arizona politics, our um, Arizona candidates are so much better speakers than than. Yeah. <laughs> We used to have worry about some of these guys. Do we have anything else enough? We want to thank the Yavapai um, County uh, Political Party. Uh, Stephen, you got something you want to read there? Yeah, there's a there's a Door Film Club event coming up in the monthly Door Film Club on October seventh at five p.m. Uh, these are Zoom uh, discussions of films. They're going to talk about the film Ice on Fire, and if you want to be a part of that. Just go to the door website at uh, democratsoftheredrocks.org for the information on who to contact about it. Yeah, and we're back to having in-person slash Zoom meetings for the, the Democrats of the Red Rocks the third Friday of every month. Where they'll be, you can come and uh, listen live breakfast. to the speakers for breakfast time, or you can tune in on Zoom from anywhere. And there's information on the speakers on that also on the Democrats of the Red Rocks website. It was nice having a big live uh, oh, thing. Really I don't know, well over 100 people, people. there, yeah. Stephen. Uh, about 150. Yeah. About 150 people there. And for there's some people still wearing masks, and I think that's great. But mm-hmm. um, uh uh, it was really inspiring just to hear our speakers and stuff it, uh, because our candidates are so good. 
um, in Arizona, we're used to losing a lot of time. Uh, Peter, we want to thank you for being with us, and thank you for your work on on, on right wing watch. It's something that all of us, uh, of the three of us, have, have have watched for years, and you know we appreciate that it's kind of depressing <laughs> to be, you know, to be enveloped in this stuff day after day as your job. Um, but um, we need it. We need him doing things like this. Yeah. We need to well, know what's going on. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the uh, voice you're putting out there with your show. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. This is vvid.org. That's where you'll find all our podcasts. It should be up in a couple of days. Um, join us there. We've got uh, 10 years of podcasts. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.